Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 525, which I titled The Final Word on the Justy Miss Kelly Confessions. And the reason I titled it that is because after this Friday follow-up here, from my perspective, I'm done dealing with the confessions. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more and elaborate more on my opinions from the work that we've done over the last several weeks. And then at that point, you either agree or disagree with me, and we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I'm I'm not going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks trying to continue to go over to make my point. I think that I made my position pretty clear in these last few episodes. And like I said, you'll either agree or disagree, but uh, Mike's got a whole stack of questions there in his paper, so we'll go ahead and get started. All right, our first one comes from Kelly. She says, in subsequent confessions by Jesse Miss Kelly, was there any information that, quote, no one else knew? No, well, no. There was more information, but it was a lot more incorrect information. Some things he changed after sitting through the trial uh, in the Bible confession, which I, I kind of got this backwards, or, or kind of lumped them together in the last Friday follow-up, um, where I talked about the statement to the prosecutor as kind of being the Bible confession, is not. There's two separate statements that Jesse gave. After trial, the police officer in the car, the officer said that Jesse had confessed to them. His attorney, Dan Stidham, then asked him what was going on, and he, he said that he wants something done about it, puts his hand on a Bible, and gives another statement. In that statement, he, he does change a couple things as far as in the uh, first interviews, he repeatedly says that, and, and excuse my language here, but the quote was that Damien was screwing those little boys up the ass. And in this one, after he saw the, you know, he saw Peretti testify, they heard the whole conversation about there not being any evidence of that happening. He says that Damien just put it in there a little ways and then pulled it out. Uh, he also then, so the new information was Damien then masturbated all over the clothes. Interestingly enough, he says that you know he did go to work. He went to Stephanie Dollar's house, which is what his dad had said that he did. Or excuse me, Ricky Dees had said that he did after work, that he went back and his dad said that he was at Stephanie Dollar's. He said he, he babysat for her, uh, hung out with some friends, goes to Lakeshore Trailer Park at like 6.30, sees Damien and Jason. Now he says he has a whiskey bottle or a bottle of whiskey and Damien and Jason have beer. And so he says at 6.30 they start, which uh, I, I got to look again on Google Maps, but I believe 
Uh, it was figured at a walking pace. It's a good 40-minute walk or so from uh, Lakeshore Trailer Park to the crime scene. He says around 6.30 or so they leave, they make the walk. And then Stidham is trying to get him to describe the details. And in this confession, everything happened out in the open by the pipe bridge. He's describing the pipe bridge, which he describes as being the size around of his leg is the pipe, um, which you've seen it. It's definitely bigger than that. Yeah, it's probably, yeah. what, two feet, two feet in diameter-ish? Maybe a little less than that? Yeah, about two feet. Yeah, um, definitely not the size of your leg. But then he says that that's where the boys were thrown in the water, about 15 yards. I think at one point he says 15 feet, then 15 yards, and 10 feet from the pipe in the big water uh, that he says is over his head. It's it's really sad. To, if you read the transcripts of that, I think it was February 8th interview, you just get the simplicity. I don't want to say simplicity because that sounds insulting. It's really not. But just the immaturity in Jesse. So it sounds like Jesse must have like tubes in his ears or something because Stidham is asking him, did you get in the water with them? And he said, no, because it was over his head and he can't get his ears in the water. And he kept talking about how I'd have to hold my ears if I went in the water and the water was too deep. It was over my head. Uh, but he says that the boys were thrown in the water in the big body water in the bayou that was over his head. And only Damien and Jason did that because he couldn't get in because of his ears. Which, of course, that's not where they were found. They were found in a very small body of water that was maybe knee-deep water back into the woods. It was not by the pipe. It was, you couldn't even see the pipe from where they were found. So new information comes out there, but again, it's still completely inaccurate. But the big change is where some people will hang their hat on this, that in this version of the story, and then the next one that he gives is when he when he is speaking and being interviewed by the prosecutors, he says that, he was drunk. So now he was so drunk, he can't remember anything is what he says. So, you know, they'll say that's why he doesn't remember any details because he was so drunk. Uh, he says in those interviews that a lot of the details that he told the police he made up or, he's, you know, he says that he didn't say them. So it's, it's you have to read it the best. I mean, I'm not going to do a whole other episode breaking these down. You can go read them and you can see there's certainly you can you can probably cherry pick some things out of there and go look he's he's got this part right now because he's because he literally has nothing right in the the interview that that they used to get the warrant and the arrest he got nothing right uh maybe he gets a little bit closer in this one but then but now the whole crime scene is out by the pipe bridge that's as big as his leg and it's a big body of water that's over his head so uh nothing nothing new really comes out of that other than like I said now he's claiming he's so drunk that he doesn't remember what happened uh, and then one more thing uh, he does describe, and, and again, remember I mentioned in this week's episode that you know he had spent the night with Vicky and Aaron Hutchison the night before, and we've heard Aaron's stories about the clubhouse and all that. So in this version, post-conviction, Jesse tells Stidham that in those woods, when he's asking him to describe the scene, that there's a tree fort in there, complete with walls and a ceiling or a roof, all that, which does not exist. The only place that tree fort has ever existed was in Aaron Hutchison's imagination. And now Jesse describes the tree fort that is not there. This next one comes from Jeremy. Since you've concluded that there was no narrative given by Jesse between the time the notes end and the time the tape begins, what do you make of Jesse's later statements on 1210 and 1215, where he repeatedly stated that he was made to refine and practice his statement prior to going on tape? He claims that every time he would make a mistake, they would make him go back and start the whole story over until he got it right. Yeah, I've read those interviews. I, th I think he's talking about the interviews with Offshay. I, I don't know. One thing I thought that maybe, I mean, it, it could just be full of it. Maybe it didn't happen. Certainly, And if it did, then we got even more problems because Ridge and Gitchell, but you, we saw the notes. Well, they both testified too. 
and they both testified that once he said he was involved, that was it. They stopped it, turned the tape on, and that's it. So if there was conversations in there, they lied about that, and they left it out of their notes, and it didn't work. You know, he still didn't have the story right, even with their prompting during it. I've read that and thought maybe what Jesse's remembering is the time between the first and second interview, the clarification interview. I mean, it was obvious by that interview that he they had talked to him and helped him straighten some things out, so to speak, uh, namely the time. He's consistently saying that it's 9 a.m. or it's noon or it's 9 a.m. and the kids skip school and all of that is morning time. And then they're off the record for this period of time. And then they turn the tape back on, and the first thing Gitchell says is, what time was it? It was 5 or 6 or 6 or 7. And Gitchell says, earlier you told me it was 7 or 8, indicating they had this conversation earlier. So maybe that's what he was referring to, but I'm not sure. I mean, he could have been just, I mean, he could be lying in that interview too. We have to consider, you know, we can't just take for granted that Jesse's telling the truth all the time. And that's not what this analysis was about, whether or not he's telling the truth. What we're looking for is, does he have independent knowledge of the crime scene? I mean, he's certainly lied. He he gives gives a confession and then he re, and then he says that he's innocent and then he gives his, his statement again implicating himself and then says that he's innocent again. So there's no question that he's lied. I mean he's told several different versions of the same story. But what we're analyzing and looking for is does he have independent knowledge that the police didn't already have? And the answer is no. All right, Summer says at trial, what evidence did the prosecution present that was given to them through Jesse Miss Kelly's confessions? Well, they they presented several things, but. In my opinion, Fogelman grossly misrepresented the evidence in his closing arguments. I mean, I guess he was doing his job, but he, for example, the castration or the the degloving of Chris Byers, you know, he tells the jury, you know, this is something only someone that was there would know. There's no way that he could know that this happened. And he said in his interview, but again, we went through and looked at that. And Jesse's complete statement regarding Chris Byers' castration was, Yes, uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, and then, yeah, that's where he was cut at. You know, he was he was told and gestured. I mean, I mean Gitchell straight up pointed, was he cut here? And points to his groin, and Jesse says, yes. And that's not him d- demonstrating independent knowledge. Same thing with the ears, which, again, was a theory that the police had. But we heard the exchange at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the episode this week, about the the bruising on the ears and grabbed by the ears. Where how there must have been and, and, and the whole thing is completely illogical the way Jesse described it. We didn't even get into that. And the fact that he says, How are they forcing them to have oral sex? They must have been holding them. And he says, Well, one was in front of him, one was behind him, and he was holding them by the arms. And then of course the gestures by Gitchell, no, it was could it have been up here? Was it up here? So Gitchell's showing him it's up here. It's in, using his hands by the ears. But so then Jesse's saying what started as the person behind pulling, holding the arms, then becomes holding them by the ears and pulling, except for if you're behind them and you're holding by the ears without getting gross about this, you're pulling in the wrong direction. You'd be pulling them away from the other person. And if it's the person that's the actor here, then they're pulling, and then they're, why is there another person behind them? It just none of it, none of it adds up. But he used that as independent knowledge. The He used the fact that Jesse says that they use sticks. He couldn't have known there were sticks. So there were a lot of the points that we broke down in the last week, Fogelman did use at trial as Jesse demonstrating independent knowledge. It's just the fact that when you actually listen to it or read the transcripts and break it down, none of that came from Jesse. Jesse, All Jesse ever did 
with any of those points was agree with the investigators. Okay, and Brittany says, two of the boys' pants were found buttoned up, zipped up, and inside out. If the killer ripped their clothes off, isn't it likely that the buttons would be popped off because of the force? The fact that the buttons were intact makes me think the boys took their pants off themselves. Hope I'm not beating a dead horse. This just gave me a probable example of what happened. I don't think so. I think we've discussed this, I think not so much on the show, but on social media that Parker, you know, I have a kid this age, Parker's seven and a half years old. And, you know, one day you'll find his pants inside out with the underwear still in him on the floor. And the next day they're pulled straight down and you just never know. Interestingly, though, uh, as people point to the other confessions, Jesse in his, I think, February 8th statement does describe in detail the removing of the pants. And he says they grabbed them by the pant legs at the bottom and pulled them off, which is how when I'm helping Parker get undressed, I do. It's kind of a funny game, you know, if he's lallygagging, you know, I like to call him pokey because Parker's never in a hurry to do anything. And you're getting ready for bed and I'm going to help him get his pajamas on. I'll grab the bottom of his pants, just like Jesse was describing, and then jerk and shake and, you know, mm-hmm. until his pants slide off and he's giggling and it's just a good old time. <laughs> <laughs> but point being, the way Jesse described them would not be the way we would find them because the, the, in that case, they would not be inside out. But I have done that many times with Parker. He's pulled his pants down the other way many times, and I, we've never had a button pop off. So no, I don't, I don't think so. Now, listeners on the fan page pointed out an error on 525 that we said the police mentioned Michael Moore running away when, in fact, Jesse mentioned it first. Can we clear this one up? Yeah, that was a mistake on my part. Uh, and a, a few people caught it, whereas I don't remember exactly what I said, but, I, but apparently what I had said was that the fact that Ridge told Jesse that Moore had ran away. But going back to the transcripts after uh, some people pointed it out a few lines before that, Jesse had said that, that Moore had run away. But, you know, that was so that, that was 100 percent my mistake. And I, it probably had more to do with how I uh, broke that down. The way, I, the way I prepped for that episode was to go through the transcripts and pull out every crime scene detail and put them into categories. So I would have a chronological listing of every time a certain thing was mentioned independently. And I missed that line, obviously, when I did it. But but again, that's one of those things. Um, it was certainly a mistake on my part. I appreciate you saying we when that was completely my mess up. Well, I, I could have caught you in the edit and I didn't. Right. So. Yeah. Your fault. That's your fault. Yeah, it's on me. <laughs> um, but no, uh, the, the bigger point was that's not an independently verifiable issue or piece of evidence. So, you know, whether Ridge said it or or and, and that was even whether it was Ridge or Jesse, which it was, in fact, Jesse. There's no evidence that it actually happened. The only thing that indicates that Michael Moore ran away and was caught and brought back was the fact that Jesse said he was. And then, you know, as I mentioned in the episode, Moore was found 27 feet away from the other two boys. And people have said, there, see, there's, that's, there's proof. He was further away. He ran away, except for Jesse says that he ran the other way. And so he, he ended up, you know, him being 27 feet to the north doesn't help clear up the fact that he ran to the south. Uh, so, they, so they still oppose with each other. And then also his account is that he brought them back to Damien and Jason and left. So even if you believe him, him being upstream 27 feet doesn't make any difference because he says that he brought them back. So they had all three boys together again when he left. So uh, that's a detail Jesse does uh, offer up on his own, definitely. But it's nothing that is supported by any evidence on the crime scene. Okay, and then there's also been some discussion from the listeners about a confession from Buddy Lucas. What do you think about this one? Buddy Lucas, at one point, does tell investigators 
Uh, remember the, the the tennis shoes, the the white white and blue Adidas tennis shoes that Jesse told the interviewers that he had given to Buddy Lucas prior to this, um, yeah. when you know, there was a rainy day, his shoes were muddy or whatever. And so Buddy Lucas eventually tells investigators that Jesse gave him the shoes, uh, and if I remember correctly, it wasn't like a straight up confession, but an implied confession that he just couldn't look at him after what had happened, and so he gave them to him. So it became this confession, and then Buddy turns the shoes over to police. They don't find any trace evidence of any kind that matches the crime scene on him. Um, but what you might not realize is that originally Buddy Lucas was interviewed and asked about the shoes, and he says, yes, I have the shoes. They're right here. Jesse gave them to me in February, and he discusses a, a time when he, when he was out, got his shoes muddy, and didn't have any shoes to wear. The problem with this case and hearing Aaron Hutchison interviews and hearing Jesse's interviews is we get a good idea of the tactics by the police. Whether you agree with them doing this or not, they will not accept any truth that is not theirs. So, you know, Buddy Lucas, in his first time he's asked, tells them one thing. They don't accept it. They continue talking to him. They continue leaning on him. And then lo and behold, just like Jesse, he changes his story completely. And now there's a confession and the the shoe exchange happened much, much later. So that's one of the confessions. but. Again, it, it started with something completely different, and after police refused to accept that, then it became that Jesse had confessed to him. Okay, and this is kind of a funny one I want to mention to you. There was a lot of talk on social media about the uh, FabFit fun read. <laughs> uh, whoops, yeah. In my opinion, you gave it everything you had. I mean, it was it was a pretty tricky <laughs> I, one. I gave her hell. <laughs> I don't really know what to say about it. I didn't know how to pronounce anything. <laughs> and, and FabFitFun kind of changed up the copy on us because normally we, I've never had to list all their products before. Yeah. And so I knew we had the FabFitFun read and I knew Becky was all excited about her box. That's her like, that is her all time favorite sponsor of ours is FabFitFun. She, she loves it when she gets her box. So I, I went in right before we recorded and I was like, Hey, what I, I'm, I'm doing a FabFitFun read. Tell me about your, what was your favorite product or something that I can mention on the show that you really liked. And she told me about that, uh, um, that, that here that, we go. Right. I'm not even going to try to pronounce or remember it, but it was, she's used, it's a, it's a, it's a this thing that it, it like does, runs a sensor on your face and then like adjust, it reads the moisture level and what in your face and then you wash and scrub your face with it. Some sort of, whatever it is, she flipping loves it and it's the coolest thing ever. And then she mentioned one other thing. And then I come out and start reading the ad and we were under the gun yesterday, last week. We were recording late. And they've got all these freaking product names, and I'm supposed to read all of them, and I didn't know how to pronounce any of them. And I and, I, and evidently, I to my to my uh, and have a chagrin. <laughs> yeah. How did I do? And evidently, much to my chagrin, <laughs> uh, I got every single one of them wrong. Apparently, it's not tarty; it's tarte or tart yeah. or I think it's tart, and you said tarty, right? And a freaking e on the end of it. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So yeah, sorry about that. I, well, I, I should say sorry. Apparently, people like the read, but but in all seriousness, FabFitFun is absolutely Becky's favorite sponsor we have, and it's a pretty sweet deal. Uh, FabFitFun.com. What was it? You offer code Truth, yeah, and they give you ten bucks off your first box. So it's like for forty bucks, you get a box that has like three hundred and twenty dollars worth of products in it. So go order them, so I don't get in trouble for messing up that read. <laughs> And they'll continue to be a sponsor, so Becky can continue to get her boxes. Which, because uh, either way, she's going to get her boxes because she's just going to make make me pay for them. 
if she right. doesn't get them from Vapid One. This got really sad. <laughs> oh, like, please, yeah, please, please, please. It's the best sponsor ever. <laughs> All right. Well, you'll get a second chance here with this next ad. We'll be right back. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Listener and creator of the Crime Tracer videos, Abby Scott, pointed out to us in an email that Jesse wasn't actually shown a picture of Michael Moore during the pre-interview. It was, in fact, Chris Byers. What's this all about, Bob? Yeah. So I thought... Abby was wrong when she emailed me. So like I said, Abby makes the crime. So she did the Damien's alibi video and retracing the steps of the boys video. And I know she's working on one for Miss Kelly too, that I think is almost done, but she does a lot. She's not just making videos off the podcast. Abby does a ton of research and I learned you don't want to tangle with Abby (laughs) and and try to correct her on something because she's never wrong. Uh, And so in, in this case, She'd emailed me and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that they didn't show him Michael Moore. They showed him Chris Byers. And I was like, nay, nay. And I showed her the interview notes where it says, showed Jesse photo of victim on coroner's table. Jesse identified him as, quote, the Moore boy. So we assumed, and not just me, I will say this. If you go to like Jive Puppy's website or anything, they all say that he was shown a picture of Michael Moore. And he wasn't corrected then either, was he? No, it doesn't say that he was right or wrong. At trial, Ridge and Gitchell both testified, and this is what Abby found, was and I've read it, but I just never really paid much attention or missed it. Um, during Ridge's testimony, they present him with, I believe it's Exhibit 76. And they say, what is this? And they say, that's a picture of Chris Byers on the autopsy table. And they ask him, is this or a photo like this, the one that you showed to Jesse during the pre-interview? And he says, yes. So at that point, I'm like, well, maybe just one like that. Maybe it was still more. But then after him, Gitchell comes on the stand and they show him the same picture. And they say, can you identify this? Exhibit 76, which we know is a picture of Chris Byers on the autopsy table. And Gitchell says, that's the picture that we showed Jesse. So in the notes, they didn't, it doesn't say that he got it right. So really, what's happened there again is the one who, remember, Gitchell was the one like, you you know these kids so well, right? You know them by name, right? But what we find out is that he misidentified Michael Moore, not only uh, at the beginning of the interview, but in the pre-interview, he looked at the photo and said that's Michael Moore when it was, in fact, Chris Byers. Doesn't change a lot. I mean, we still have, uh, before we went on the air here, I was checking the the autopsy reports. Byers had cuts to his nose, his lips, uh, stab mark to his head, severe bruising on his face. So same thing, uh, same issue that I had with it being Michael Moore in that, you know, the one detail Jesse describes when they say, you know, where did they cut him? They cut him on the face. Well, he had seen still a photo of one of the victims with cuts on their face. So the only place he knows there was cuts was on the face. And then also, you know, he keeps saying he hit him and bruised him up real bad. 
and he had seen a photo of Chris Byer's face bruised up from the attack. So doesn't change anything in that regards. Interesting that he got them mixed up again, uh, misidentified them, and that so many people have missed what Abby has found. I'm sure there's tons of people that know this, but you know, when I was researching other websites and stuff and looking what other people had to say about it, it's everyone says he was shown a picture of Michael Moore, when in fact Abby is right. He was shown a picture of Chris Byers, according to Gitchell. And also I want to point out that, and I think I already mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to drive it home again because there's still people on Facebook kind of arguing about, well, just because they didn't include stuff in the notes doesn't mean Jesse didn't give them any details while we're talking about these notes. Understand that the people that are arguing on the internet are the only ones claiming that. Ridge and Gitchell have never said Jesse gave them details before they turned on the tape. Unless there's something I've missed, but I've seen them where they specifically said they didn't during their trial testimony. So when, for people that are arguing that that he did was trying to draw details back, again, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't help the situation because, you know, if he had supposedly just come out with it before the tape gets turned on and he can't remember it 10 minutes later, then it probably wasn't a real memory to begin with. But they're not claiming they did. No one, no one involved in the case is claiming that he gave them details before they turned the tape on. They, as a matter of fact, they specifically state otherwise. So the people that are arguing against that, it's just, I think they're wrong. Summer says, why do we have recordings of Jesse's interviews and all of little Aaron's interviews with police, but we have no recordings of Jason Baldwin being interviewed? Uh, we also don't have any interviews of Damien. Damien Eccles being interviewed, or don't have any recordings of Damien Eccles being interviewed. Uh, it seems to me the practice with West Memphis PD is to not turn the tape on until they're getting what they want. That pisses us off now in a day and age where you can put 128 gigabytes of media on a card this big. A little different back then. I mean, I, I still think it's inexcusable, or I shouldn't say that because there is an excuse. Um, I still would have preferred they, they did it that way, uh, that they just recorded everything. But, you know, you're talking about actual tape that will give you 30 minutes per side. So they, they, didn't, they didn't go through the process of taping everything. Um, we know that Damien, of course, was interviewed several times. And they never turned the tapes on because he was never telling them that they want what they wanted to hear, which was him saying that he did it. I, I'm sure that had he said, "Okay, I admit it, I did it," they would have turned the tape on and recorded the confession. But they don't want a record of them denying it because that all becomes record. You know, there's a, the, the, that all becomes public record of them denying that they had any involvement in the crime or explaining their alibi, whatever. Now, Jason, uh, I, matter of fact, I just I was having a conversation on Facebook this weekend. And Jason had actually texted me about the episode, and so I had him on the line. I asked him because, of course, you know, you for you edited it. The interview we've done with Jason, he's talked about his night at the police station that day, and he's told me. And there's, I'll point out, there are people that don't think this happened that they did talk to him. That they, and he said he told him where he was that day, told him he had nothing to do with it, and that's why he said the way they operate is they won't accept the truth. They just kept telling him, "Nope, we want to know." And he said, that, and what he specifically told me was they kept telling him. If you didn't do it, then why did your friend say that you did? But they wouldn't tell him what friend. And Jason said that he kept saying, what friend? And they said, well, you tell us. And Jason's words to me were, quote, I'm not going to play guessing games. I don't know. I don't know who this friend is. Or, But if they said that, they're lying to me. I had nothing to do with it. And so they never turned the tape on. Uh, and then eventually, so the, the big conflict in the, in the big Facebook conversation was that he had uh, refused, uh, refused to sign the rights form. Okay, mm -hmm. that were the you know before you were doing a formal interview where they would put you on the record and all that. And and Jason said, I didn't refuse to sign any form. Well, then they brought up, well, here's the form which says refused, but that there's a difference between the rights form 
and they're available on Callahan's site for everybody that was interviewed. This form explains to you these are your constitutional rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. These are all the rights that, that are available to you. So Jason read that form, and he initialed that he acknowledged that he had all of those rights. The bottom of the form, it says, if you wish to waive your rights to an attorney, sign here. And that is what Jason refused to sign. And it put on there, I don't know if he wrote it or gets or wrote it or whoever, but it wrote refused, and then the initials JB, Jason Baldwin, on it. And so this became this big hot debate, but I, I think it was a good kind of teachable moment, I guess, for the rest of us to really look at those forms. If that's our mentality, that if you refuse to waive your rights, that's not cooperating, you're, not, you're refusing to sign it. No, that's not it. He signed or initialed everything on there, acknowledging his rights. But when it said to sign here, if you want to waive your rights to an attorney, he wouldn't do that. And that was because he said that his mother, I think his mom said too, before when they arrested him, before he went in, she told him, don't talk to them without an attorney or don't talk to them. We need to, you need to have an attorney. And so when it said, do you want to waive your rights to an attorney? He said, no, he refused to do that. Um, so anyway, there's, there's no record. The police never, and, and Jason said he was frustrated when we interviewed him that they wouldn't write anything down. They wouldn't take any notes when he was talking to them, when he kept telling them that he didn't know who this person was and that he didn't have anything to do with it. And then once he, once he said that he would not waive his right to an attorney, the conversations were over. Uh, so that's Jason's, what J Jason's side of the story, what happened that night. Nothing of substance was said either way. Obviously, if he had, you know, if he had confessed, the police would have said he confessed. It's just a matter of whether he had some, what would have been more like, like Jesse, like pre-interview interview before they would have signed the rights for him and, and put something on the record. But that's why there's nothing on the record for Jason, because he never agreed to speak without an attorney. Uh, he didn't confess or give them anything they wanted. Um, some will say that he didn't talk to them at all. Jason says that he did talk to them. He just kept telling them that he didn't know anything about the crime and didn't know who had said this about him. Next listener, Jennifer says, if I understand the Alford plea correctly, the West Memphis Three have been convicted of the crime, innocent or guilty. Therefore, anyone who came forward now would have nothing to lose. No one is reopening the case, so why wouldn't whomever did this admit it? No one's reopening the case because there isn't clear and convincing evidence out there yet to cause the case to be reopened. The current prosecutor, Scott Ellington, has promised to review any new evidence and consider it, and I believe that if he is presented with clear and convincing evidence of someone else's guilt, this can be undone. He can drop the charges against Damien and Jason and Jesse, which would fully exonerate them and remove the conviction from their records. And then he could file charges against whoever the evidence is pointing towards. So, th and that's what we're looking for. You know, it's, it's not about, you know, the side effect will be what would happen to uh, those three. But, you know, my goal from the beginning here has been to find the truth. And if the truth had led us you know, if I had done this investigation and the truth led me like, hey, all these people got it wrong and these three did it, then that's where we would be going. But I don't see that. I don't see that evidence at all. I don't see any case at all. Just a bunch of circumstantial made up BS to build this case against these three. So therefore, someone else did this, in my opinion. And again, you're free to disagree with me. I believe someone else did this. And our goal 100% is to find that person and prove it. And that's part of the reason why we're taking the break, is to allow us the space to try and do that.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Alyssa says, did any of the defendant's attorneys attempt to show interviews like this one to the jury to prove that the interrogators were coercing false testimony? Yes. Dan Stidham did put up two experts to talk about false confessions and this one. And actually, I think I'd like for you guys to hear some of that. So what we're going to do here is I'm going to drop in. It's about a 15-minute clip of Warren Holmes. Now, I, you've heard me mention him many times before. He has he has investigated something like uh, or interrogated something like 1,200 people or 2,000 people that have been, at this point, uh, when this happened in 93, that have been accused of murder. He worked on the Kennedy assassination. He worked on the Martin Luther King assassination, several other big cases. He was the expert that was brought in to explain to the jury his opinion of Jesse's confession. However, he was limited. He was not allowed by Judge Burnett to tell the jury what his actual opinion was in his report that this was, in fact, a false confession. But uh, he does do a good job of explaining from the expert among experts is who Warren Holmes was, uh, what we should have been looking for and the issues that he had with this interrogation and this confession. Uh, and this is, we're not going to play the whole thing. We're just going to do, like I said, maybe 15 minutes. And this is just the direct examination. And and, and of course, in cross-examination, he's called on the carpet on a lot of these things. And all of that, you can go right to Callahan's website, click it, listen to the whole thing. But for today, here is Warren Holmes at Jesse Miss Kelly's trial. I also understand that you've worked on the assassination of John F. Kennedy. I worked on the assassination of President Kennedy. I worked on the Martin Luther King murder. I worked on uh, Watergate, and more recently, uh, I worked on the William Kennedy Smith case. Were you also involved in, in the, the Boston Strainer case and the Hampton case in Louisiana? Yes. Mr. Holmes, have you ever been qualified as an expert on police interrogation techniques by any court in the country? Yes. How many times would you say you've been qualified as an expert? Oh, at least 50 to 100 times. Judge, we'll stipulate that Mr. Holmes is qualified as an expert in the field of police interrogation. Thank you. All right, you may proceed. Mr. Holmes, would you tell the jury approximately how many homicide cases that you've worked on in your career? I have interrogated a little over 1,200 people who have been accused of the act of murder. Have you ever taken a false confession from a suspect? Several. And could you tell the jury what an interrogator would look for when they are taking a confession that might raise a red flag or be indicative that the person is giving them a false confession? Well, uh, the first thing that you look for is he's got to tell you something that you don't already know. And uh, the second thing that you look for is that uh, whatever he says does not conflict with the evidence or uh, the crime scene analysis. The third thing, he should be able to lead you to the fruits of the crime or the crime weapon utilized. 
Now, in the initial part of the confession, it's always in narrative form where he suddenly just gets it off his chest and is a, uh, an indication of relief that sets in. And he tells you about it. And you don't have to prompt him or lead him with questions. He just gets it all out at one time. Then when he gets done telling you in a narrative form, that's when you start asking the questions. Also, what you look for is that when you do start questioning him to clarify certain points in his confession, if you're wrong in a supposition, he will tell you that. He'll tell you, no, that's not the way it happened. Uh, he will correct you. Uh, you don't have to correct him. And then you always look for little incidental details. And he'll say, well, just at the time this was going down, we noticed a man <coughs> walking a dog across his field. And later on, you verify that there was, in fact, a man walking a dog across a field. So any time they supply an incidental detail of an occurrence that took place simultaneously with the crime, it lends credibility to the confession. They will describe the behavior of themselves and of the victims. They will describe their feelings at the time. They will describe the conversations between the culprit and the victims. They will describe the conversations between the co-defendants. They will describe their feelings since the crime has committed. And when they're confessing, you get the impression that <coughs> their words match the emotion that you see. They're reliving the experience of the crime. Now, if you don't see that match and their manner is stilted, it could be contrived and you could be getting false information. But what you're always looking for when you take a confession is something that you can hang your hat on, something that corroborates a confession. One independent witness, one piece of physical evidence, a statement made by a co-defendant that confirms it. But you're always looking for something beyond his word, just something to verify the validity of the confession. Most of what you see is that the uh, suspect, once he confesses, he sounds and he looks like he's, he's telling the truth. And, of course, after you get the confession, uh, the litmus test, the best test, is to take him out to the scene and let him walk you through the crime and see what happens. That's when you can assess whether or not he's telling you something based on memory or he's just fantasizing it as he goes along. Mr. Holmes, is there a point during an interrogation that the interrogator has to be careful um, after the suspect has been in there for a while? Is there something that happens that you've got to watch for? Most of your confessions, particularly in homicide cases, come in the fourth hour. 
there's a waning of resistance where the person becomes a victim of what I call the captive audience syndrome, where he almost becomes mesmerized by the relationship between himself and the interrogators. Anything from four hours on, there's a diminishing resistance that can lend itself to a confession, whether it be false or, or valid. Have you had an opportunity to examine the statements made by Jesse Miskelly Jr. that were given to the West Memphis Police Department on June 3rd, 1993? Yes. And have you had an opportunity to listen to the actual tape of the confession? Yes. Mr. Holmes, have you identified any of the factors that you've just discussed in Mr. Miskelly's statement? No. Excuse me. This point. I think before he can ask that question... <coughs> He needs to also address whether or not he's familiar with the investigative file sufficiently enough that he can answer that question. Uh, here, is there objection to foundation? Yes, lay a better foundation. Mr. Holmes, have you also been made aware of some of the aspects of, of uh, what was found at the crime scene and what, uh, how the, the bodies were bound and things of that nature? I would ask that, that question, I'd object to that question, because when he says I'm made aware, I don't know if Mr. Stidham told him the version or if he's examined actual documents and files, and if he's going to lay a foundation for this man's opinion, he needs to explain to us what it's going to be. Your Honor, my counsel approach the bench. Yes. <coughs> Documents or well, I I examined as as two confessions, and uh, I examined all of the material that you you sent me in uh, the investigative reports, and of course I've listened extensively to the tape itself. Now, are you asking me for? a description of what a false confession is ordinarily? No. Well, my question is, have you identified any of the factors that you've discussed in Mr. Miss Kelly's statements to the police? Not in the quantity that I would want to see, no. Well, can you elaborate on that? Well, uh, the two obvious points that bother me uh, is the uh, mistake on the time. Uh, you know, you're saying 9 o'clock, then you're saying he went home at 12. I, I just don't understand uh, if he was, in fact, involved in this crime, how he made a mistake on the time factor. And the thing that really bothers me is the ligature, what was used to tie up the, the victims. Now, he certainly knows the difference between uh, shoelaces and a rope. Those are the two most prominent things, but there's a multitude of questions, uh, in my opinion, that he should have been asked to ascertain the validity of his confession. And the first time that uh, that he came out with uh, the wrong time factor, that should have been a uh, a signal that something was radically wrong. 
That's when uh, the question should have been more probing to determine whether or not he was making it up or giving a valid confession. What type of questions were the officers using to elicit the statement from the defendant? Well, first of all, you don't ask any questions in the initial part of the confession. You just let them spill it and get it out, or you just sit there and you listen, a non-directive approach. Is that what you're referring to in the, in the, the narrative? That's narrative? the way most confessions come. All of a sudden, the suspect goes belly up or resignation sets in. They want to get it off their chest, and they just blurt it out. And there's a tremendous emotional relief. You just sit there quietly, and you listen. Then when they get done discussing what happened, then uh, the points that you want to cover, you start asking the questions. And what I didn't like about this confession is that... Uh, most of it emanated from uh, questions right off the bat, without without any narrative of any any length at all, without any descriptions uh, about feelings or conversations or anything. It's all in response to questions. When it appears that it wasn't on the money, then they change it around. And say, well, in effect, could it have been this way? And particularly well, disturbing. You know, I object to that statement unless he can point to a <coughs> specific place in there where the officer said, could it have been this way? Your Honor, I think it's throughout the entire statement itself. I'm going to sustain the objection. If he's going to refer to, and if we're going to continue along those lines, I need him to be more specific in the area of the statement that he's referring to. I'll sustain the objection in that regard. Can you mention a specific, well, Mr. Both Holt? of them at one time mentioned that they were disturbed by what they were hearing. One said, uh, I'm disturbed by this time factor, and another one came right out and said, I think it, uh, I don't remember which one, that uh, he didn't think he was telling all of the truth. So uh, either he's totally innocent and just made it up, and doesn't know the case facts, or two, he was so doped up he doesn't remember what happened, or three, he's psychologically impaired, which the ramifications are a faulty memory, or he wanted to get somebody off his back and uh, he decided, well, I'll just give him a bunch of baloney, wrong case facts, and then recant later. Uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that there's false information in the confession. The whole question is, why? <coughs> is it because he's innocent or because he's duplicit and anxious and cunning and decided to offer a false confession and retract it later on? Are you aware of any literature with regard to personality traits of people who are likely to falsely confess? Well, from reading and from my own experience, yes. What are those? Your Honor, at this point in time, when we start talking about personality traits, They've got a psychologist who's going to be here, and at this I anticipate he will be. Now, this man is a 13-year law enforcement officer. 39 years, Your Honor. 13 years working for a law enforcement agency, and Your Honor, his qualifications, his expertise as to personality traits, uh, we do not agree that he's an expert in that area. We agree he's an expert in the area of interrogation. Sustained. <coughs> Mr. Holmes, is it important when you're corroborating a confession that you find things that are independent of the confession that link the suspect to the crime? That's the whole quest of your questioning after he comes out with the narrative form of the confession. 
is to get something you can hang your hat on independent of what he's telling you. One other human being who can verify it, one piece of physical evidence, one piece of documentation where you know it's irrefutable cooperation of what he tells you. Because what you're concerned about is he may recant it later on, so you want to have something that he just can't lie around. That's why you look for some irrefutable piece of evidence to corroborate the confession. And when you don't have that, you're in trouble. All right, that's a little kind of out of format for us, usually on our Friday follow-ups. But as I said, you know, I, I want to put a button in this Jesse Miss Kelly confession stuff so we can move on. So I, I kind of wanted you guys to hear that. So there it was. You've heard it, and we can be done with it now. So from this point forward, you either agree with me or disagree with me, and I'm happy to respectfully agree to disagree. But I'm done talking about Jesse Miss Kelly's confession. We're ready to to move on from here. Uh, last thing I want to mention is our, our good friend, Brooke Giddings, who hosts the Actual Innocence podcast and last year did the Convicted podcast, has a new show out, and it's called Buried Alive, and it tells the story of uh, the victim, a woman named Karen Summers, who was killed, and a man named DeMarco Carpenter, who was convicted of the murder uh, and then later exonerated after another person who was about to be executed confessed to the crime right before he was executed. And he was on death row for a completely unrelated crime, right? Exactly right. He was on on death row for another crime before they executed him. He came clean and confessed to Karen's murder, which set DeMarco free. DeMarco is free now and is actually participating in the podcast. Definitely check it out. Give it a listen. That's Buried Alive. And at the end of this episode, after the credits, we will drop in the trailer for Buried Alive. Great. And on Sunday, we're going to do the last episode covering Jesse Miss Kelly. Thanks, everybody. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open 
for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. In 1994, Karen Summers was killed in a drive-by shooting. She was 19. The next day, the police found a man with the car and the gun. The police came home to question me, and what's so crazy, I have the gun on me. But they wasn't after me, so all I know is I had a murder weapon on me, and they let me go. And one year later, Karen's murder trial ended in a conviction. But the thing is, they convicted the wrong man. Oh, I remember when they said guilty, I just, I recall crying, just crying. I went back to the cell and cried. It was like, you know, they tell me a life in 170 years, I'm never getting out of prison. After a shocking death row confession. I wasn't trying to shoot Karen Summers. I was just, and she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I shot Karen Summers. And the man's life was changed forever. Buried alive is what I was for 22 years. Not literally. I look forward to speaking. I definitely want y'all to tune in. The true story of DeMarco Carpenter on the podcast, Buried Alive. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.